All right, we're good to go. Uh, the high point of our gathering is actually uh, to hear God speak to us and address us in His Word. And uh, I'm excited and delighted to say that today we come to uh, really the key chapter in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. I'm going to read it for us, and then I'm, uh, I'm the God, going to teach it. Leviticus chapter 16, hope you've got it on your Bible or your devices, we're going to read the whole chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat, whose lot falls to the Lord, and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering." He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his fingers sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover then he shall sprinkle some of it with his fingers seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He's to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. 
He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh and intestines are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you on the tenth day of the seventh month You must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Let me lead us in prayer. And uh, we'll dig into this part of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks and that you speak to us powerfully in your Word and by the power of your Holy Spirit for our good and to make us more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. We pray that's exactly what would happen now as we consider this wonderful part of your Word to us in Leviticus 16. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, It's been my observation that there are three days in the year where the churches are way more full than at every other Sunday. Of course, those three days are Christmas, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Now, within Judaism, would you believe, there's a similar phenomenon. The big festivals of Judaism are Rosh Hashanah, which is Jewish New Year, Pesach or Passover and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And... uh, If you're only going to show up to synagogue once a year, you would show up for Yom Kippur. How do I know this? Well, because I'm a Jew and that's what I did when I was a kid. Uh, The way the Day of Atonement is taught in Leviticus chapter 16, and believe it or not, also a little bit in chapter 17, shows it to be really unique amongst all the ceremonial laws that God gave to his people Israel. It's at the centre of Leviticus, which is at the centre of the Torah, And it stands out from all other ceremonial laws. And today we're going to see why that is the case. And of course, we're all going to see what it means for us who know the fulfillment of the law that has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to see what this means for us as God's church. 
Because we're now halfway in terms of content through the book of Leviticus, and because it's important to understand the broad context of Yom Kippur, that is the Day of Atonement, I'll make sure we're all on the same page by giving us a brief overview. After he had redeemed his chosen nation Israel from slavery in Egypt, the Holy God, for the first time since Eden, chose to meet in close proximity with his people. God descended upon Mount Sinai in a thick cloud with smoke and thunder and lightning and a terrifying sound. And through the mediation of Moses, along with Aaron and some of the elders, he covenanted with Israel that he would be their God and they would be his holy nation. But who could actually, properly, if you like, dwell in the joyful, life-giving presence of the Holy God? Or to use a slightly more biblical expression, who could ascend the mountain of the Lord? The initial answer was, no one. Not even Moses, who though he went to the top, had yet to be protected by being placed in the cleft of a rock as God walked past and and held out his hand and then Moses kind of saw his back. God is holy and in his perfect justice, he will not abide the presence of a sinner. Nonetheless, God says that he will remain with his people, Israel, and because they can't carry a big mountain around with them, he gives them instructions to build, I guess, a portable version of that mountain, that is, they build the tabernacle, a big tent, and the glory of the Lord descends into the tabernacle, into the most holy place. Uh, But at the end of the book of Exodus, Moses can't go in precisely because the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So will it be possible for a sinful person to enter into the joyful, life-giving presence of the Holy God? That's where we kind of end the book of Exodus. And in the opening chapter of Leviticus... God speaks to Moses from that tent and begins teaching the Israelites that certain mostly blood sacrifices made by people who are what we call ceremonially clean and with the mediation of a special priesthood show what needs to happen for sinful people to safely approach the Holy God. The laws concerning the types of sacrifice are given followed by the laws that establish the roles of the priesthood and the whole system gets set up and you know what? It actually works. Fire from God comes out from the tabernacle and consumes the initial sacrifice and people fall down rejoicing with trembling. But then two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, think that because the whole thing works, they can approach God probably in the inner room, in the most holy place, They offer unauthorised fire and they get consumed before the Lord who will only ever always be honoured as holy in the sight of his people. God therefore then gives the Israelites a series of laws that enable them daily to see this sharp distinction between what is clean and unclean, to appreciate just how sharp the divide is between the things of our fallen world that pertain to us in our sin and the things of the holy God 
who was yet chosen to tabernacle among people. And uh, as you probably saw, and I bet if you're here, you'd remember from last week, God wants his people to appreciate such distinctions, even in a very personal way, shall we say, uh, that being holy rather than being sinful in your innermost being is terribly important. Who was here last week and heard Gav talk on the icky stuff? Such fun. So, the question still remains, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? How can a sinner dwell in the joyful, life-giving presence of the Holy God? And to that question, God now gives his profound and unexpected answer with the institution of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Chapter 16 begins with highlighting the big issue. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. The way I like to uh, illustrate this opening to the chapter to uh, my youth group is like this. John and Jane are apprentice butchers and today they're going to learn for the first time how to operate the huge industrial meat grinder. And the instructor calls them in, John and Jane come in, I'm going to show you the meat grinder. Just uh, look, before we start, I want you to look out there and see those two headstones out there? Yeah, that was Bob and Mary and Bob and Mary, they didn't listen when I gave them the instructions. Now, John and Jane... Are you going to listen well? <laughs> yes, sir, yes, we're going to listen very, very, very carefully, right? The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Nadab and Abihu, who died when they approached the Lord. So we're suddenly listening very, very carefully. When, we're all hanging on the every word, when and under what precise conditions can the high priest, who represents all of uh, God's people Israel, enter safely into that most holy place? Well, here we go, the instructions begin. Firstly, the high priest needs to deal with his own sinfulness. Verse 3, this is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. With a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Skip down to verse 6, Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. Again, verse 11, Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. So, step 1 if you're the high priest, is to make a sacrifice for your own sin and the sin of your family. And that would get you into the sanctuary area, the holy place or the tent of meeting. You're close to God, but still not directly in His presence. Step two is to make sure that nothing even remotely connected with sin is coming into the presence of God on your person or on your clothes. So, Aaron has to wear special clothes that never go out of the tent where God is living. Verse 4, he is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on a linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. And what happens to those clothes at the end of the day? Just a bit of a, a trivial interest. Verse 23... 
after all, the, all that's happened, which we're going to find out about, then Aaron is to go uh, into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place and he's to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in a holy place and put on his regular garments. So these clothes can't be stained by anything to do with the general effects of sin in the camp. They've got to remain in God's holy place and his body has to be clean and uh, then he has to put on the clean undies and the clean uh, uh, outside stuff. So far then, to be able to approach the holy God, you need to be a high priest, you can only do it once a year on the Day of Atonement and you can only do it when a sacrifice has been made for your sin and you can only do it when there's not even a hint of the general effects of sin on your person, your underwear or your clothes. After all that, could Aaron go into the presence of the holy God and survive? Well, no, he can't. It's still not enough. Because in order to come into the presence of God, you have to make sure there is still, here at least, a barrier between you and God. Quite literally, a smoke screen. That's what we learn in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He's to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony, that is the ark, so that he will not die. Now, in case you don't have a visual for this, there's a big box in the most holy place, we call it an ark, and the box has a lid, and on the lid there's these two uh, cherubim things with big wings, and the idea is that God kind of sits on top of that, right? And so you're putting the smoke there to conceal where God sits, so that you're not directly in his presence. And I I've got to say, I can't imagine what it must be like going into the one room where God himself was seated. I know if it was me, I'd be terrified. I mean, what if the smoke dissipated a little too quickly and there was a clear line of sight between me and the holy God of all the universe and he could see me right in front of him? I mean, you know, how much have I, and we can all say this, how much have I in my own heart expressed resentment for God? Failed writing stuff on my arm instead of doing the way he wants? How much have I in my own heart willfully shut out God? And there I would be standing in front of him, hoping desperately that the sacrifices were sufficient and that that thin veil of the smoke kept me hidden from his sight. The first half of what we learn uh, from the Day of Atonement is in many ways a summary of what we've learned in the first half of the book of Leviticus. God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, Yom Kippur is uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow? Someone Google it if they want. Uh, Yom Kippur, the Jews will be celebrating it and they will say those words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty in the synagogues. They'll say, kadosh, 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 Adonai, Eloheinu. You had to do it as a kid over and over. His holiness and our sinfulness means he's completely unapproachable. The New Testament speaks of God as the God who dwells in unapproachable light. A sinful person can come into the presence of the Holy God, but only when sin has been paid for and only in the manner that God prescribes. And so far, let's be honest, it's in a way that's far less than satisfactory. Still got a smoke screen going on. But we turn now to what is the much more significant and important part of the Yom Kippur ceremony. I think as Christians, we so often think that the Day of Atonement is about being how how sinful people like us can come into the 
presence of the holy God and live. It's true, that's definitely part of what's on view. But the much more important feature of this ceremony is not how sinful people can come into the presence of the holy God, but about how the holy God can come into the presence of sinful people and how he can remain with them. As we saw in painstaking detail in the first 15 chapters of Leviticus, sacrifices for Israel's sin, both known and unknown, were made daily. And the importance of ceremonial cleanness and the mediatorial role of the priests has been firmly established. So why does this extra, special, annual event get prescribed? Is it because it's the only one whereby one person can sorta enter into God's presence and live? Well, a bit. But in and of itself, that's not even the main purpose. The high priest enters the most holy place, not as an end in itself, but for a very important job. The purpose is to clean God's dwelling place. It's like a spring cleaning of the tabernacle. Is spring cleaning still a thing? Do people do that in their house? Like, who has a spring clean once a year? Is that a thing? Yeah, no. I asked a morning congregation at Harrington Park and some people who are older than myself put up their hands, so it's gone out of fashion. But here they're going to have a spring clean of the tabernacle. God's contaminated sinful people have been in his proximity all year. Like children walking through the house with muddy shoes over and over again. Even if the place they're walking to is the shower, sooner or later you've still got to clean the carpet, right? But it's not dirt from the Israelites that drifts into God's house it's unholiness. Unholiness is the thing that needs to be cleaned away so that the holy God can remain living amongst his sinful people. To clean dirt, you use water and detergent. To clean unholiness, what do you use to clean that? I know the typical Aussie answer to the question, how do you clean unholiness, is something along the lines of by being good, doing good works, do better, pull up your socks, be moral. You do lots of good deeds and I hope that they outnumber the bad deeds you've done. And God's like this big mean judge in the sky with his scales, right? And if the scales balance in your favour, then she'll be right. But the way the Bible says unholiness is cleaned is with blood. That's why in chapter 17, which I'd love to go into, but I'm not going to go into today, but it's why in chapter 17, God teaches the Israelites that both the eating of blood and the shedding of animal blood for sacrifice away from the temple is forbidden. It's to impress upon them that blood is valuable for sacrifice, for cleaning unholiness, in that it represents the life of the animal, which of course is being poured out in substitutionary death when it's sacrificed. So, on the one day a year when Aaron actually enters into the most holy place, into the presence of God, verse 14, look again carefully what happens. He's to take some of the bull's blood and with his fingers sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Uh, Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his fingers seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people, take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, you expect it to say he will make atonement for Israelites, but it's not. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place. It's God being at one with his people. Because of 
the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been, which have been getting dealt with daily in the, the sacrifices. So Aaron goes into God's house, right into the Holy of Holies. He cleans away Israel's rebellion using blood. Then after he's cleaned the most holy place, he goes back out in the tent of meeting and he cleans it with blood. Verse 16, he's to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There we are. Sorry, I was one slide behind. So he's cleaned the most holy place with blood. He's cleaned the tent of meeting with blood and now he goes out to the altar, which is at the front of the tabernacle, and it too gets cleansed with blood. Verse 18, then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns, of which I think there's four. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. So he's now cleaned the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar but there's still one more job to do verse 20 when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place the tent of meeting and the altar he shall bring forward the live goat he shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites all their sins and put them on the goat's head he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. What's happening here is symbolically that the sin and the unholiness that gets cleaned up from God's house is then thrown away and taken far away by the garbage collector. And uh, the, the technical theological term for where it gets taken away to is um, whoop whoop, that's where it goes. Far away, we have no idea. Does anyone actually know where their garbage goes? Like, I don't know where, the, when the garbage man picks up my rubbish, I don't know where it goes. I know some people probably knows where it goes, right? But I don't know. Note on the screen the movement of the cleaning process. People do this when they mop the floor. You know, you back yourself into a corner because you don't want to go over what you've covered. Check it out, right? Aaron cleans the most holy place with blood. Then he cleans the sanctuary with blood. Then he cleans the altar with blood. And now he takes that big pile of mess, all the sins of the Israelites, and he puts them, literally, he puts them on the head of the goat... And the goat is sent far, far away from God's house, just like the garbage truck takes the rubbish from God's house. You might say, as far as the east is from the west, so is sin to be removed from the place God chooses to dwell. And I can't help myself but just get off my notes for a second here. Do you realise that if the sovereign Lord of the universe chooses to dwell in a person which he can and he does the only way that's ever going to happen is by him removing the sin as far as you can possibly imagine to whoop whoop god does dwell in christians by his holy spirit ergo your sin according to god has gone whoop whoop god has made the required sacrifice to get rid of all your sin past present future there's a wonderful thought. In the New Testament, you're the dwelling place of God, we're the temple of the, the Holy Spirit. The Day of Atonement is not so much about people having their sins atoned for, but God's house being atoned for. In verse 20, it's the inanimate objects, the most holy place, the tent of meeting, the altar. And yet, it's as if God's dwelling place being cleaned is what, in the end amounts to atonement being made 
for the Israelites. That's how it's kind of summed up at the end, verse 30. On this day, atonement will be made for you, to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you'll be clean from all your sins, even though right after this, it talks again about how you clean up the temple. So, the reason that the Yom Kippur ceremony is unique, the reason it stands out from other ceremonial laws in the Bible is because it's not so much about how sinful people can live with a holy God, but about how a holy God can live in the midst of sinful people. God is doing what's necessary for Him to dwell amongst them. The house in which He lives, in the midst of them, gets cleaned uh, of unholiness so He can stay there for another year. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can dwell in the presence of the holy God? Well, so far, no one. But the process by which the Israelites symbolically and ceremonially obtain atonement turns out to be an expression of faith in the God who makes it possible for himself to dwell with them. I have to say that again. The process by which the Israelites symbolically and ceremonially obtain atonement, that whole sacrificial system, turns out to be an expression of faith in the God who makes it possible for himself to dwell with them. Salvation is only ever by faith. That includes the faith of Israelites pre-Jesus. Their faith determined that they were God's people. God deliberately orchestrated this whole system with a built-in problem, which hopefully you've all picked up on by now. The cleaning isn't permanent. Even though sacrifices of atonement were made daily, the sinfulness and the rebellion of the Israelites still kept contaminating God's house such that he needed to, it to be cleaned every year. Every year, the Israelites were reminded that even though God was closer to them than any other nation, he was still distant on account of their sinfulness. God himself designed the system to make his people look forward to something better. Specifically, from the perspective of ancient Israel, it set up the hope that perhaps one day there would be a way God would dwell permanently with, perhaps even, if you dare to dream big, in his people. Of course, that was God's plan, and of course it was realised upon the sacrifice of Jesus. New Testament, Hebrews 9, from verse 11. When Christ came... As high priest, so like the Aaron, right? When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. That is, Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system, if you like, from both sides. His blood permanently cleanses the dwelling place of God. See, so you enter the most holy place once for all, but his blood also is the payment for all the sins, like all the sacrificial system, for his people. That is, he has obtained eternal redemption. Uh, the blood of Christ uh, is like, you know, the next dimension in sacrificial blood from a, a Levitical standpoint. Uh, by way of implication, things are very straightforward then. If you want to live in the presence of the Holy God, the joyful, life-giving presence of the Holy God, both now and into eternity, the only way that's possible is through faith in Jesus, such that his death and resurrection becomes yours, that his ministry is representing you, is done on your behalf. Trying to approach God any other way 
will result in fire, like it did for Nadab and Abihu. Because God will be shown to be holy, always, only and ever, by those who approach him. If Jesus is not your high priest, to put it simply, if you're not yet a Christian, if you don't rely solely upon Jesus as the mediator between you and God, then for goodness sake, make a change. Avoid that fire. Turn to Jesus, say, Jesus, I want you as my high priest, the Lord of my life. Tell God that's what you want. Secondly, enjoy the privilege of prayer. Look at those words carefully. Enjoy the privilege of prayer. It doesn't say partake in the duty of prayer. It says enjoy the privilege of prayer. What does prayer have to do with the Day of Atonement? Well, let me explain. It is so thoroughly presumptuous to think that any sinner could just speak to God and that he would listen. Yet again, for us, Jesus' sacrifice has made it possible for sinners to approach the Holy God with confidence. We're not trembling with a bowl of smoke, right? We're right there in the presence of God, Ephesians chapter 2. The reason you can pray a little prayer anytime, anywhere is because Jesus came to open up the way. That's the vibe you get from Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly the faith we profess, skipping to 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, not with fear and trembling, but with confidence, so that we may receive mercy to find grace to help in our time of need. You know what? I can do a much better application than this. Just listen to Roz. You've got a prayer month. Wait, how, how many days now? Three days to October? Oh my goodness, the year's kicking on. One month of prayer. Don't partake in the duty of prayer month. Enjoy the privilege of prayer month because, frankly, if not for Jesus, there's no reason God should listen to you in the first place. But that he has done what's required. You may approach that throne of grace to find help in time for me with boldness. Finally, and this is my favourite, the true Yom Kippur, the real atonement, that is the blood of Jesus, means that our consciences are cleansed. Today, the way Jews observe Yom Kippur is by asking God to forgive them. Some of them may fast, some of them may seek to right wrongs that they have committed in the past year. When I was a kid, the rabbi taught us, if you've stolen a candy from the shop, go in with a dollar and put it on the bench, you know, that's how God will forgive you. Most rabbis will teach you that if you just ask God for forgiveness and try to live a good life, you'll not be guilty before him. There's no sacrifice. And you know, even if there was a sacrifice, it would only be something to make you outwardly clean. It would be part of the ceremony that was pointing to the reality, the true holy place that Jesus went into. But notice how the rabbi who wrote the book of Hebrews explains the difference between what animal sacrifice achieves in comparison to what Jesus' sacrifice achieves. Hebrews 9.13, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. That's religion, outward, symbolic. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? God is holy. He will accept no sin whatsoever in his dwelling place. But Jesus' sacrifice was so potent that the same God who would consume Nadab and Abihu by fire would come and dwell in an individual like you and like me by his holy 
spirit such that your body is now a tabernacle, a temple. It is impossible that you can bear any ultimate guilt for your sin. Even the deepest, darkest, secret things that make you feel physically ill when you think about that you've done them or thought them or said them, God says, I, the holy God, can come and live here because that sin is, uh, is thoroughly cleansed. Your conscience can be 100% clear. For me, this is the thing that should make it hardest for anyone to become a Christian. The truth of the gospel, that's easy to establish. Jesus died, rose again according to the scriptures, that's easy, that's factual. The hardest thing, I reckon, should really be that people go, can this actually be true given how good it is? That I can have my slate before the holy God wiped clean 100% that's almost too good to be true i can understand if that's the reason it's hard for you to become a christian i sympathize but it is true maybe you haven't worked it out before but if you're a follower of jesus then the guilt you have for sin is actually cleansed in reality not only symbolically but in reality by the blood of jesus you can continue to serve god even though you've committed those terrible sins for which you honestly feel the guilt will never go away and that's what christians have and delight and enjoy if you're not there yet repent Jesus cleans away the guilty conscience, what could be a better incentive to serve the living God? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the blood of Yom Kippur, that is for the blood of the true Yom Kippur, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who cleanses us from our sinfulness and who cleanses us as your dwelling place from the sinfulness of that would otherwise blemish your holiness. And Father, we thank and praise you for this wonderful, too good to be true reality, but it is true, that our consciences are cleansed 100% and that you dwell in us by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for anyone who as yet does not have Jesus as their great high priest, that they would come to know their sheer delight it is to have a conscience cleansed, to have the blood of Christ applied in reality to our hearts, so that we can live with you in your joyful life-giving presence both now and into eternity. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.